Let us pray. Almighty God, who didst call Timothy and Titus to do the work of evangelists and teachers, and didst make them strong to endure hardship, strengthen us to stand fast in adversity and to live godly and righteous lives in this present time, that with sure confidence we may look for our blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. That is the collect for the feast day of Saints Timothy and Titus, companions of the Apostle Paul, and uh, their feast day is January the 26th. And since we are going to take a look beginning today at Paul's second letter to Timothy, I thought it was an appropriate way for us to begin with that prayer. If you have your Bibles, please open them to 2 Timothy. Uh, we are going to just read through the first few verses of 2 Timothy, beginning at chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace and mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. 2 Timothy is one of my favorite books in the New Testament. And um, it's a relatively brief book. And uh, since we've only got one semester uh, before we break for the summer... Uh, I was looking for a, a short book, but also a timely book, and I think that this is both of those things. We could spend a whole year actually studying 2 Timothy. We're not going to do that. But it is, as I said, one of my favorite books in the New Testament. Uh, it's a very moving letter. Let me say this as we begin. Uh, this is uh, one of the most powerful books in the New Testament in large measure because of the circumstances under which it was written. Bishop Hanley Mole was one of the great evangelical bishops. He was one of the scholar bishops of Durham. And uh, he once said that he could not read through a single chapter of Paul's second letter to Timothy without something like a mist gathering in his eyes. And when you consider the circumstances under which Paul was writing this letter, the year was 64 AD or thereabout, you begin to understand why Bishop Hanley Mole said that. This is, in many respects, Paul's last will and testament. It is the last letter that Paul ever wrote that we are aware of. And it was written under very difficult circumstances. Uh, the Apostle Paul, when he wrote 2 Timothy, uh, sometime between 64 and, as I said, 68 AD, he was in prison. Now, as you know, Paul had been in jail on many circumstances, many occasions, he had been arrested, of course, in Philippi. God had delivered him. 
uh, but there was the possibility that he might be executed there in Philippi. Uh, he had been arrested in Jerusalem. He had been held for several years in Caesarea Maritima without trial before the Roman governors Festus and Felix, before he appealed to Caesar and was ultimately sent on to Rome. And he had been in Rome on a previous occasion where he had been put under house arrest. So Paul had been in trouble with the law before for preaching the gospel. And we said that the, the primary problem was that Paul was out preaching the message that Jesus was Lord. It doesn't seem like a too dramatic declaration for us today, but you have to remember that in the first century, to pronounce that Jesus was Lord meant that Caesar was not. And that was serious business. It could get you in a lot of trouble. And it got Paul into trouble on more than one occasion. But on every occasion, it seemed that somehow he managed to escape or he was delivered. But this is a totally different situation. Paul is in prison in Rome again. He is not under house arrest this time. He is being held in what was known as the Mamertine Jail. It's still in existence today. If you go to Rome, you can actually visit it. Paul is not under house arrest. He has no freedom whatsoever. During his previous incarceration in Rome, he was under house arrest to such a degree that people could come freely and visit him, and he could even travel within close proximity to where he was being held. This is a totally different situation. Paul is being locked away in a prison. His cell is an abandoned cistern, only about 20 feet in diameter. It was accessible only through a hole in the ground, and you could only get in and out by means of a rope. It was the place where they held people until they were to be executed. And it's there in that cold, dank, unforgiving, rat-infested environment that Paul writes these words that we have before us today. Paul gets a keen sense that his time on earth is rapidly drawing to a close. Paul had had a very illustrious and a very meaningful ministry. He had been working for the Lord Jesus Christ and for the kingdom of God for over 20 years, and he had logged in excess, think about this, this is the first century now, in excess of 20,000 miles. Some of it by sea, most of it by foot over the course of those 20 plus years. He had a strategic plan. Paul was going to take the gospel to the great metropolitan areas of the ancient world, and that's one of the reasons why you'll notice that most of his letters... Most of his letters are written to churches, and not just to churches, but to churches that Paul had founded and churches that he had established in the great commercial centers of the ancient world, places like Philippi and Ephesus. These were great cities, even the city of Rome. Now, Paul believed that if you could establish a Christian presence in the great metropolitan areas of the ancient world, then it wouldn't be long before the gospel, like everything else, would be coming and going. And so that's what he did. And his plan, we know today with the advantage of hindsight, was quite successful. Because here we are today. But at the time that Paul was doing it, there was no guarantee that the Christian gospel was going to flourish. There was no guarantee that these churches that he had established would last. There were a great many pressures being brought to bear against Paul at this point. And he knew, as he was locked away in this prison, after all of this time, that his number was basically up. He knew that his work was over. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4 for just a moment. This is toward the end of the letter, but this is what Paul says. He says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, 
and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. So I want you to picture a man who has endured everything imaginable for the sake of Jesus Christ. He has been publicly flogged, beaten, stoned. On his journey to Rome, he was shipwrecked. When he was shipwrecked on that island of Malta, he was bitten by a venomous snake. And you know how I feel about snakes. I, <laughs> of all the things that happened to Paul, that must have been the worst. But you name it, and it happened to the Apostle Paul over the course of almost three decades of ministry. And now to come to this kind of an end, locked away, all alone, isolated, by yourself, in this miserable prison, and not knowing if your work will actually flourish and survive beyond you. That's why Bishop Hanley Mole said he could hardly read through a single chapter of this letter without something like a mist gathering in his eyes. And this letter is also very powerful because Paul was not writing to a church. He was not writing to a group of individuals. He was writing to one man, one individual, to his friend Timothy, who was now located far across the Aegean and Adriatic Seas in the city of Ephesus, a young man that Paul had not seen for two years. He is forgotten, and he's forsaken. And we find that hard to believe. How could anybody forget the Apostle Paul? But he did. You know, people are fickle like that sometimes. You're gone for a short period. You know, people who have lost loved ones come to realize how this happens. I've always said that the hardest time for people who have lost loved ones, and this is my experience as a pastor of over 20 years, is that it's the, it's the weeks after the funeral. The leading up to it, you're in a state of shock oftentimes, and then you are surrounded by people who are there comforting you and taking care of you and bringing in the food, and there's lots of activity and so forth, and then all of a sudden there is the funeral, and then what? Everybody else goes back to their own lives, and indeed they must. But your life will never be the same again. All of a sudden, things change for you and that sense of aloneness. And let me tell you something. Loneliness, I think, next to guilt, is the worst feeling in the world. Guilt will crush you. Well, so will loneliness. And that's how the Apostle Paul was feeling. We must never forget that these great saints of the church were flesh and blood men and women just like you and me. They were not special. They were not larger than life. They were not superhuman. They were people just like you and me. And we know that the Apostle Paul was feeling forgotten and forsaken because of something that he says here in 2 Timothy. Chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. He says, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome... He searched for me earnestly until he found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. Paul is telling us very clearly there that there were some people who were ashamed of him. 
There were times when he went into churches to visit them again, and everybody welcomed him. But he'd been incarcerated now for an extended period of time. And what had happened? Everybody had gone on with their lives. They'd mourned him briefly, but they'd gone on to their lives, and many of them weren't even sure that he was still alive. There was one man, this fellow that he mentions, who searched earnestly for him and refreshed him and visited him. All of his friends, he said, were ashamed of his chains. Now, ashamed of his chains doesn't mean that they're ashamed that he's in prison, but they're fearful. They're fearful to come and visit Paul because if they come and visit Paul, that means that they're associated with him. Don't you remember what happened to Peter? Following Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus and some of the others followed at a distance the temple guards as they took Jesus to the palace of Caiaphas, the high priest. And outside that palace there was a fire and there were people gathered around and Peter was there warming his hands, sort of listening to see what was going to happen to Jesus. And a little girl says to him, you are one of them. I, I know you are because you've got the accent of a Galilean. And what did Peter say? I don't know the man. Oh no, you were one of them. I do not know the man. No, I know, you are, you're a Galilean. I swear I do not know the man. Now was he ashamed of Jesus? Well, not ashamed in the sense that he was ashamed to be associated with Jesus, but he was fearful. Fearful for his life, of course. Well, you can understand where Peter was coming from, but can you understand where Jesus was coming from? All of his friends in his hour of greatest crisis and needed what? Deserted him. Run away. One of them, John presumably, ran away and left behind his clothes. As he was wrestling with the guards to get away, they pulled off his clothes and he just took off. Can you imagine how Paul must have felt? All those years, all that he had suffered, all that he endured, all that he had taught, he had poured himself out as a drink offering. And now here he is, locked away, languishing in this miserable environment, and everybody has moved on with their lives. Those are the circumstances under which this letter was written. Paul is forgotten, he is forsaken, and he is lonely. One of my favorite parts of this entire letter, the part that really brings tears to my eye, is in the very last chapter of the letter, Paul is appealing to Timothy. And he's saying, Timothy, come and visit me. You know, it's like every mother feels when her kids go off to college. Call your mother. You know, every now and then I have to call my boys and say, call your mother. You know, uh, you need to call your mother. Your mother's worried about you. She's concerned about you. She loves you and she misses you. Well, this is where Paul was. He was alone, and he's thinking about his young friend Timothy, and he writes to Timothy, come and visit me. And then he adds this line, and come before winter. Come before winter. There was a great preacher in Pittsburgh many years ago, back in the 1950s. His name was Dr. Clarence McCartney, and he wrote a sermon on this one verse, come before winter. And it was such a powerful lesson about remembering people in times of distress and so forth. This great, you can find it online, a sermon called Come Before Winter by Clarence D. McCartney. It was such a powerful sermon that his congregation at First Presbyterian Church in Pittsburgh insisted that he preach it annually. You know, most of the time we think hearing the sermon once is enough. Um, 
But in this particular instance, it was such a moving, such a powerful sermon that people wanted to hear it annually. Come Before Winter by Clarence D. McCartney. Clarence D. McCartney. You can pull up the sermon. It's quite famous. But what a powerful thing. Paul is saying, come before winter. Because he knows if Timothy doesn't come before winter, Paul's not going to be there to greet him. So can you imagine the great apostle in this situation? It's a moving letter because of the circumstances under which Paul was writing, his personal circumstances. It's also a moving letter because Paul is not only concerned for his own well-being. He knows any moment he is going to be taken out, taken out from that pit, and he's going to be led out to the Ostian Way where he is going to be beheaded. And ultimately, that's how Paul was executed. He was beheaded. Most of the time, enemies of the empire were crucified, as Jesus was. The only reason that Paul was beheaded, as opposed to being crucified, you'll recall that Peter was crucified, crucified upside down. Paul was beheaded. Anybody know why he was beheaded instead of crucified? Because he was a Roman citizen. That's the only reason, because he was a Roman citizen, and Roman citizens could not be crucified. They had to be beheaded. But Paul knew that at any moment he was going to be taken from that pit out along the Ostian Way, the main thoroughfare leading out of the city. And it had to be done publicly, so you see, as an example to everyone. And so he knows at any moment he's going to be taken out. And he's concerned for his own well-being, but he's not too fretful about that. Because after all, in his letter to the Philippians, Paul talks about the fact that he's not afraid to die. He actually longs to go and be with Christ. He says, to die is to gain. So Paul is not fearful of death. He is convinced that Jesus Christ has triumphed over death. He's more concerned about the fact that the Christian faith may not carry on after he's gone. That's his primary concern. What's going to happen to all that I've done? How many of you have worked your whole life and would like to know that something is going to carry on after you? Anybody would like to know that something, that your life has been not for for a waste, but it has been for a purpose? That there is some sort of legacy? Well, Paul wanted a legacy, but his legacy was the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was the church of Christ. And this was the thing that was really plaguing his mind. Because the very existence of the church in this year, 64 AD, was hanging by a thread. Paul's life was hanging by a thread, but so was the life of the church. This was the height of the Neronian persecution of the church. In the year 64 AD, a great fire erupted in Rome, and it burned the greater part of the city. There was only one small section of Rome that was not burnt. It was a ghetto, or a group of people who were declared to be the followers of an itinerant Jewish rabbi named Christus lived. A Jewish rabbi who incidentally had been condemned to death and crucified by order of the Roman officials as an enemy of the state in the empire. That was the only section of Rome that did not burn. Nero was the emperor at the time. He was not a very popular emperor, and there were charges brought against the emperor that he, in fact, had actually started the fire. In fact, the rumor was, and you've heard the expression, that Nero had started the fire in the hopes of destroying it so that he could rebuild the city as a memorial to himself, according to his own plan. And legend has it that as the city was burning, he was standing there on the parapet of his palace, strumming his lyre while Rome burned. 
It actually wasn't true at all. Uh, we now know from documentation from the time period that at the moment that Rome was burning, Nero was actually at his summer palace outside the imperial capital. And actually, he came back in and did everything in his power to somehow put the fire out, but to no avail. And all these charges were brought against him. He knew that the people were turning against him. He needed a scapegoat. And as I said, there was only one small section of Rome that was not destroyed, this ghetto where these people, the followers of Jesus Christ, lived. And so he argued that because they were the only ones that survived, they were the ones who had started the fire. And he made the Christians the scapegoats. And there began a systematic purge and persecution of the early Christian church during the reign of the emperor Nero. Terrible things were done to the early believers. Some of them were taken into the Colosseum. They would be dressed in the carcasses of dead animals and then thrown to the lions to be devoured. Others were wrapped in combustible clothing and lifted high upon stakes and then set aflame to light the way in the avenues into Rome at night. Others would be taken out and they would be crucified in the same manner that Jesus was crucified, a terrible form of death that was designed to take place over the course of many days, misery and suffering. This started as Paul was in prison. Indeed, Paul was in prison because of Nero. He was realized, was realized that he was an instigator, that he was a leader of these Christians. And so Paul was arrested and locked away. But because he was a Roman citizen, of course, he immediately was not crucified or, as I said, executed in any kind of ill way. Instead, he had to stand trial before the emperor. So it would be some time for him. But the point is that the church is now under great persecution. And he's already seen that his own friends have deserted him. They're ashamed of his chains. Well, what about others? Furthermore, it's, it's not just that there's this outward persecution that was taking place. There was competition against the Christian church in these days. What were known as mystery religions were popping up all over the place. All kinds of new religions. We would call them New Age religions. But mystery religions that were competing with Christianity. And many of them were actually pulling adherence to the faith away from the truth. They had the appearance of being Christian, but they also had Gnostic, Greek, mystical ideas with them as well. So all of a sudden, the church is under attack from without. It's under attack from within. And furthermore, Paul looked at the world around him, and what did he see? He saw society itself, the Roman Empire, in collapse, morally, spiritually, physically. Will the church survive? There was no guarantee. You have to remember, the church was very young at this time. There were not great institutions. They had no power in the culture or in society. Churches were just household groups, what we would call home groups. That was the church oftentimes. And these were not wealthy, powerful, propertyed people. Most of the early Christians were what? Poor people. It would be years before the church would begin to have influence. It would be years before the Roman Empire would become the Holy Roman Empire. At this point, the church is beleaguered and hated. And it is the intention of the emperor and those around him to stamp it out completely. And as I said, Paul knows that his time's up. He knows that his time's up. 
Paul would be martyred sometime around the year 64 AD. He would be taken out. So for all we know, Paul could have finished this letter and before the ink had time to dry, his captors would come and take him and put him to death. Now how would you feel if you were the Apostle Paul? His primary concern is for the future of the church. If he knows that his time is up, the church is in danger, he knows that he has to do what? He needs to spread the gospel, but how does he do that when he's in chains? He understands that he's got to pass the baton. The responsibility for leading the church and for spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ in this very toxic and hostile environment, the responsibility for that has to be passed on to somebody else. And that's what 2 Timothy is all about. 2 Timothy is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to his young protege, Timothy. Timothy is going to have to step into the shoes of this man who has become a giant of the faith. So the question we have to ask ourselves next is, well, who's Timothy? Everybody's heard of Paul. Who in the world's Timothy? Well, we know quite a bit about Timothy, actually. We know from the book of Acts that he was a convert from Lystra. Uh, Lystra was one of the cities in the province of Galatia. Paul had met Timothy on his first missionary journey. Paul and his traveling companion Barnabas had set off from Antioch in Syria. They had traveled down the coast to a little port called Seleucia, and they had traveled across from Seleucia to Cyprus, if you know where Cyprus is located on the globe. And they went to Cyprus, and they ministered there for a brief period of time. Then they traveled back up to the continent. They went up to Pisidian Antioch. There were two Antiochs in the ancient world, Antioch and Syria, where they started out, and Pisidian Antioch. And they went into Pisidian Antioch and preached the gospel. Initially, the message was received, but a week later, we're told people were filled with jealousy, and they talked abusively against Paul and expelled them from the region. So they left Pisidia, and they went on to Iconium, and they preached the gospel there. But we're told that people who had opposed them in Pisidia traveled the whole way to Iconium and opposed them there. And so they were forced out of Iconium. They went on to Lystra, and at Lystra, the opposition was so intense that Paul was publicly attacked, stoned with stones, just the same way that Stephen was, and dragged outside the city in an unconscious state. People thought he was dead. And he managed to somehow recover, and they traveled on from Lystra to the town of Derby. And guess what happened in Derby? Persecution again. Now, at the end of that, having traveled through Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, Paul could have traveled back to the church in Antioch of Syria where his friends were. The most direct route to do that was to travel through what is now modern-day Turkey through the town of Tarsus, which would have been an attraction for Paul. Why? Because he was from Tarsus. That was his hometown. So at least he would find some friends there. But here's what Paul and Barnabas decided to do. They decided not to go back the short route, but instead to go back through the towns where they had just been, where they had faced all of that persecution and that opposition, including the town of Lystra, where Paul had been stoned. 
And the scripture says the word of the Lord never comes back void. Because it was there in Lystra that Paul encounters three people. Three people who had heard his message and had embraced it. Two women, Lois and Eunice, and a teenager. Probably around the age of 15 years age. And his name is Timothy. Boy, that is an encouragement to us, isn't it? Sometimes we think that we're just casting our pearls before swine, don't we? Nobody's listening to us. The culture doesn't want to believe. It's so easy to give up, isn't it? But Paul didn't. He persevered. Let me tell you, that's one of the greatest virtues of the Christian life. Perseverance. To press on. To know that ultimately we are fighting the battles, but God has won the war. And that's what Paul believed. And so he pressed on and he went back to Lystra. And it paid dividends. And let me tell you, it paid dividends for you and for me. Because if Timothy hadn't taken up that baton, you and I wouldn't be here today. So thank God that Paul persevered. So Timothy was a convert from Lystra. He had a Jewish mother. The book of Acts tells us he had a Greek father. So in many respects, he was uniquely suited to being a companion of the Apostle Paul. Paul, of course, was Jewish, but he was a Roman citizen, and he was going to be ministering who to whom? To the Gentiles. So Timothy was, in many respects, an ideal companion. He became Paul's faithful companion for 15 years. Now, Paul had several companions over the course of his ministry. We know that he went with Barnabas on that first missionary journey. He had people like Titus with him as well. He had John Mark. But Timothy was special. He was only a lad when he started off. As I said, only about 15 years of age, probably, and I'll tell you why we think that. But we know that he was young. And yet Paul says, I have no one like him when he wrote to the Philippians. He said, remember, Timothy, I have no one like him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he refers to Timothy as my beloved child. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, he calls Timothy my brother and God's fellow servant in the work. So that's who Timothy was, a young man, a convert from Lystra, who evidently had left his mother and his grandmother and everything that he had known and traveled with Paul for about 15 years. By the time that Paul is writing to him, he is the chief pastor of the church in Ephesus, one of the major churches of the ancient world, one of the major cities of the ancient world. How many of you have ever been to Ephesus, by the way? If you ever get a chance to go to Ephesus, do it. Ephesus is a remarkable place, one of the great uh, excavations uh, available in the world today. It's a remarkable place. You can walk down that cardo, that main thoroughfare, and you can actually see the facade of the library. It's an impressive place to go. It had a Colosseum that could seat 20,000 people. It was a major city. So to put Timothy in this place was to put him in a position of some prominence. He was a cardinal rector. He was the rector of the St. Philip's of the ancient world. That's where it was, Ephesus. That's where it was located. So that's who he was. We know something else about Timothy. He was young. We know he was young because Paul, on several occasions, makes reference to it. 
In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, Paul says, Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set the believers an example. Here in this letter, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, he encourages Timothy to flee youthful passions. I'll leave that up to you to figure out what that might possibly be, but flee youthful passions. Now, if Timothy is being described as a youth, what did that mean? Well, in the Greco-Roman world, there, were really only, there was only one division, really two categories of age. There was what was known as the juvenile, and then there was what was known as the elder. Only those two categories, basically, in the Greco-Roman world. You became an elder at 40. So some of you are real elders. But everybody before the age of 40 was considered to be a juvenile. Now, juvenile did not necessarily mean a child. It could mean anybody. Oftentimes it meant a young man at the prime of his life, a man who was eligible for military service. So we know that Timothy must have been beneath the age of 40, somewhere in his 30s. And given everything else that we can gather, he was probably called by Paul to be his companion when he was a teenager. So it's, many scholars hold that Timothy was probably no older than about 30 years of age. Now that's remarkable when you consider the fact that they say that the millennial generation now extends childhood well into the 30s. That, that's what they say. I don't know if that's true or not. But people obviously grew up much faster in those days, didn't they? So he's a young man. Furthermore, we know this much about Timothy. He's sickly. He's not particularly healthy. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, look at what Paul says. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, Paul says this, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and for your frequent ailments. He had frequent ailments. Now, we don't know exactly what they were, but they were frequent. And so Paul is actually prescribing some sort of tonic for this man. So he's young, maybe only 30. He's sickly. Furthermore, we can tell that he is sensitive and shy. Timothy is what we would probably call an introvert today. How do we know that? Well, we gather that from a number of things that Paul says. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he writes to the church in Corinth and he says, when Timothy comes to you, put him at ease. Which indicates to us that he was an anxious boy, a nervous Nelly. Put him at ease. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 7 through 8, chapter 2, verse 1, 3, 12, 4, 5, Paul says the same thing. He's encouraging Timothy to stand up to stand up, to be courageous, not to fear persecution. And he's telling them this over and over again because presumably he needed to remind Timothy to be those things. That Timothy by nature was retiring and shy. And furthermore, we know that Timothy was probably a sensitive young man because in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4, Paul recalls their parting. When Paul left them at Ephesus to pastor the church, and he said that Timothy broke down in tears. Why not? 
He'd been called away at 15 years of age, perhaps, following this man around. Paul had become to him what? Not just a mentor, a father. The father that he really never had with that unbelieving Greek father he found in Paul, this man who had cared for him. Paul refers to him as my beloved child. He's young. He's sickly. He's shy. He's reticent. And he's the man who's called to fill Paul's shoes. When Paul thinks about the state of the church, when he realizes that his number's about up and he's got to pass the baton on, who does he think of passing the baton on to? Timothy. Now you put yourself for a moment in Timothy's shoes. How many people want that job? Some years ago, I was asked if I would be a part of a um, search process in Pittsburgh. And um, some of you I know are from Christ Church Grove Farm. And one of the things I was asked if I'd be a search, um, and part of the search process for that church um, to replace John Guest. And I thought about that, and I prayed about that, and there was a part of that that was very flattering. There was also a part of that that was just terrifying. I thought, how do you step into those shoes? How does anybody step into the shoes of a giant? I've always, I, I don't know our new mayor, but I've always thought that he needs extra prayers. How do you step into the, the shoes of a man who's been the longest serving mayor in the history of the nation? A man who is really, in many respects, a, a living legend. That's got to be intimidating, doesn't it? It's got to be terrifying. Can you imagine how Timothy must have felt? Timothy, young in years, frail in physique, retiring in disposition. He was the polar opposite of Paul in every way whatsoever. Paul was not shy or retiring. Paul was bold. On one occasion, he said, I stood up to Peter to his face. Can you imagine that? Two bull elephants going right at it, that first church council. Paul was not afraid. Paul was willing to say the things that everybody else was fearful of saying. Paul was not shy. Paul was not sickly. He must have had the constitution of an ox to endure everything that he went through. Timothy was just the opposite of Paul in every respect. And yet Paul had no doubt whatsoever that Timothy was the man to carry on the work. The question is this, how was he going to do it? How was he going to do it? Well, Paul tells him very clearly here, in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, at the very beginning of the letter, he says, you do it by the help of the Holy Spirit. Timothy wasn't expected to do this work entirely by himself. He was to do it by the aid and assistance of the Holy Spirit, whom John calls the paraclete, the one who comes alongside to help and to assist. So those are the circumstances under which this letter was written. The letter was written not to a church, but to this young man, Timothy. It is the passing of the baton it is the last will and testament of the great Apostle Paul. Here's the third question for us to deal with today. Why should we study 2 Timothy? Because I submit to you, we are living in a very similar time to the one in which the Apostle Paul and Timothy ministered. We are living in a world that is in moral, spiritual, and physical chaos. Now, some of you may not agree with that, but I'm curious to know how many of you think we probably are living in a world of moral, spiritual, and physical chaos. 
The culture seems to be spiraling out of control, doesn't it? They've moved the doomsday clock to within two minutes of midnight. They, you know, they. (laughs) Whoever the they are, the powers that be, the experts on nuclear war. They're the ones that say we're, we're two minutes closer. They say the clock is now as close to midnight as it has been since 1953. We're living in a world of moral, spiritual, and physical chaos. Moral chaos? My goodness! This past Monday, the Boy Scouts of, American agree, Boy Scouts of America agreed to accept girls who view themselves as boys. Now that's moral chaos, you see. It's spiritual chaos. It's physical chaos. We're living in the same kind of world that Paul lived in. That was the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire did not collapse from the outside. It collapsed from the inside. It rotted out like a great oak, and then it was felled by the great powers that came from without. We are living in a time in which there are many competitors to Christianity. Many of you looking out over this group tonight, today, I can tell, grew up in a time when America was nominally, at least, a Christian nation. That is no longer the case. We are living in a post-Christian environment, and there are all kinds of religions. When we talked about religions when I was growing up, we meant the Baptists. (laughs) They were the other religion. And the Lutherans and the Methodists. That's not the case anymore, is it? Got all kinds of religions out there. The New Age movement, a tremendous interest among young people in Eastern mysticism. We've even got the rise of the new atheism. No religion at all. The majority of young people today classify themselves as nuns. When they're filling out those forms and it says religious preference, they put none. They have none. It doesn't mean that they're not religious, it just means that they're, quote, spiritual now. They create their own religions. And many of these religions are what? Pulling people away from the church, from the true faith. That's the world in which we're living. It's the air in which we breathe. And furthermore, we're finding that many Christian churches, because they're living in this kind of confused culture, are relaxing their grip on the gospel. This is one of the things that Paul warns Timothy about. He says, the time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine, but they will surround themselves with teachers to say what their, I love this expression, itching ears want to hear. You tell me, does that describe our culture today? We need to be studying 2 Timothy because we're living in the same kind of world. And because, ladies and gentlemen, A new generation of Timothys is desperately needed. We need a new generation of Timothys. Young men, young women, who are willing to receive the faith once delivered to the saints and go out like the Apostle Paul and suffer and, if necessary, die for the sake of him who died for us. So beginning next week, we're going to take a look at this remarkable, powerful, moving letter, Paul's second letter to Timothy. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, we just thank you for the Apostle Paul, all that he endured. When you 
chose him there on that road to Damascus, one of the things that you told Ananias was that he was your chosen instrument and you would teach him how much he would suffer for your namesake, and Paul did. He did. He fought the good fight. He finished the race. He kept the faith. But he not only kept the faith, Lord, he passed it on. He passed it on to Timothy. And Timothy fought the good fight, kept the faith, finished the race, and passed it on to us. God grant that we might do the same thing. In our time, a time like theirs, give us the courage to fight the good fight, to finish the race, to keep the faith, and to pass the good news on, unalloyed, uncontaminated, to the next generation. Grant, as we study 2 Timothy, to become like Timothy. All of our failures, all of our flaws, but trusting in your Holy Spirit. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.